Hello, I'm John Grisham, and this is Book Tour with John Grisham. Today, I'll have a conversation with Jody Picot, in which we'll discuss reading, writing, book selling, and all things related to the world of books. I'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, Audible, for being part of this series. Hi, this is John Grisham. Today, we are in the lovely town of Manchester Center, Vermont, in a great independent bookstore, Northshire Books. Its owner is Chris Morrow, and here's Chris. Welcome, everybody. I am not Jody Picot. <laughs> Change of plans. Uh, my name is Chris Morrow. Thank you so much for coming. We're, we're so excited about this special event. Um, Mr. Grisham has chosen to go on tour for the first time in 25 years. Uh, to uh, Thank you. Uh, he's going to, I think, 13 stores 13 across stores. the country, and we're so happy and blessed that he came to Manchester Center, Vermont. We appreciate that very much. Uh, his new book, Camino Island, uh, is special to us because it's uh, one of the main characters is a bookseller. Um, and so we're having a lot of fun with it. And now I have a new model because the owner of the bookstore... Uh, wears seersucker suits, drinks coffee, and stands at the front of the store all day just chatting and drinking. Uh, so drinking, told, co- drinking espresso. Uh, uh, drinking espresso. So uh, I've told my staff that's my, my new role model. Um, a little bit about John. He began writing when he was a lawyer in South Haven, Mississippi, getting up at 5 in the morning to, uh, to write before working. Uh, His first book was published by a small publisher with a print run of 5,000. But when his next book, The Firm, sold to Paramount Pictures as a film, and the book went straight to the bestseller list, his superstar career was launched. Uh, There are over 300 million John Grisham books in print worldwide. His books have been translated into 40 languages, and nine of his novels have been made into films. Uh, When Mr. Grisham is not writing, he devotes his time to charitable causes, including most recently his Rebuild the Coast Fund, which raised $8.8 million for Gulf Coast relief in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, He also keeps up on his greatest passion, which is baseball. Um, (laughs) So later on, you will be getting to see Jody Pico, and so I'll just say a quick word about her. She's written a couple of books, too. Uh, In fact, she's written 24 novels, and the last nine of those novels uh, have debuted number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And her latest title, which came out in the fall, Small Great Things, uh, takes on race and prejudice and justice and was declared by the Washington Post the most important novel Jody Picot has ever written. So we will get to hear from her. Um, So after, for some reason, John wanted to talk to me for a second, so hopefully that'll go really quickly. Um, And then we will be joined by John's editor and agent, David Gernert, for a quick second or two, and then Jody will be taking over. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Chris. Uh, wh- what I'm doing with each each of the 13 stores I'm going to, uh, and 12 of them are independent stores. Uh, we I signed books all afternoon. I met you folks. We uh, had a good visit, and then uh, I want to talk to the bookseller to talk a little bit about the store because we're trying to um, 
showcase the stores, showcase the booksellers. Uh, people have asked me, why are you touring after 25 years? The biggest reason is I just got bored. And uh, <laughs> my wife really wanted me out of the house for the month of June. Stephen King went on tour last year and had a ball for the first time in many years, and my wife heard about that, and she said, why can't you take off for a month and give me a break around here? I quit working 27 years ago, and I've been in the kitchen for 27 years uh, just pestering her, and she's, she's finally fed up. So I said, okay. Over the years, when I, would, when I would see an article in a magazine or a newspaper about a great bookstore, a great indie I would have this little twinge of guilt thinking, you know, I should go there. Best-selling authors should tour. We should go to the great bookstores in America and, and say thanks and meet fans and sign books. And, it's, you know, we should do that and sell some more books, you know. And I would have these thoughts, and they would soon go away, and I'd get lazy again, so I never did it. And I finally said that this time I'm going to do it. Also, what we're doing after what we're doing right now is recording all this for a podcast that we will, uh, we will produce and distribute starting later in June. Uh, so uh, all of the stuff you hear tonight, we, we, we will hear later, I guess. I haven't done a podcast before. I never heard of one until just a few months ago. And so <laughs> it's our way of, uh, you know, recording this and letting other folks hear uh, when I'm inviting local authors to come, along with the booksellers. Uh, last night, we had a book critic from the New York Times uh, on the show. I like that. Come be on my show. Um, so that's, that's what we're doing, and it's, uh, so far, it's a whole lot of fun. But I wanted to ask you, Chris, a little bit about the store. For the benefit, these folks all know you, but for, the, for those millions and millions and millions of people who will listen to the podcast, <laughs> tell us all about your great store. Well, the, the store was founded in 1976 by uh, my parents, Ed and Barbara, who are in the back here. I've met them. Wonderful. Uh, so uh, originally it was a much smaller store, and it was in a building across the street, which is now a bank. And we lived uh, in an apartment underneath the store, um, and my bedroom was tucked in the back. There was no windows. It was like this... Uh, Dickens kind of situation. <laughs> no, it was. We we went up a uh, a ladder in, and opened a trap door to get to the bookstore. So that that was the coolest thing as a child. Um, and then after a couple of years, that got turned into the children's section, and we moved up the street. And then in 1985 or so, um, we bought the Colburn House, which is. Um, the main building that we're in that was a continuously operating inn and restaurant for over a century. Um, and so that doubled the size of our store to about 5,000 square feet. And then in 2003, we built this building that we're in here uh, and uh, incorporated the cafe. Uh, so um, it's evolved over the years. But a big part of it right from the beginning uh, was author events uh, as soon as... Um, they got on the map. They were getting authors up here. What's your square footage now? Uh, 10,000 plus, 10, plus the cafe. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a gorgeous store. It's a beautiful store. It's a real bookstore. And I've, I've got to walk around a little bit when I wasn't working like a dog today signing a book. <laughs> um, 
by the way, signing books is not work, okay? That's really not uh, hard work. But it's a beautiful bookstore. And, it, you know, for a town this size, what, 4,500 people, to have a store this big is truly remarkable. But the people I talked to today who came through the line, the folks who are sitting here tonight, uh, they love this bookstore. I mean, they adore your family and this bookstore you all built here, and they're very, very loyal to it. And I, I see why now. It's a, it's a great bookstore. Well, we love all our customers as well. <laughs> how, uh, how many author events, how many signings do you, do you average per week? Uh, we have two or three a week, okay. uh, depending on the, the time of year. Yeah. Is that number going up or down? It's holding about steady. I mean, okay. it's getting a little harder, honestly, to, to um, you know, get great authors up here. The authors, as you know, are, are cutting back a bit on author tours, and the business is changing, and so where they're putting their money is, uh, is changing. Um, but we're, we're, we're working it and we're, we're getting lucky. There are, I, I saw a statistic in the past, um, I don't know how many dozen years we've lost like 2000 bookstores in this country. Uh, we lost 700 bookstores in one day when borders closed and, uh, you know, book selling is a tough business. It's, it's seven days a week and it's retail and you're, you're facing enormous pressures from a lot of different areas, uh, primarily the internet. Um, how you doing? I mean, you hanging on? Uh, we're hanging on. In, in, uh, this, uh, in four years ago, we opened a second store in Saratoga Springs, New York, which is about an hour and a quarter from here. And, uh, you know, between the two stores, we're, we're doing fine right now. I mean, it's, it's not easy, but it's, uh, we're chugging along. So you're optimistic about the future of your store and independent bookstores as a whole? I am. Um, you know, we this year a lot of the news has been about retail and how many stores are closing across America. But we, as bookstores, we dealt with this a decade ago, and right. so um, the um, place of the printed book has is now proven. You know, everyone thought it was everything was going to go digital, but right. that hasn't happened. Um, and also, as more and more uh, stores across the country become uh, corporate and homogenous. Uh, people are looking for unique and experiential uh, experiences, and, yeah. and uh, so that's and that's what we've been doing for f- 41 years now. It seems like the independents in towns that are too big for the chains uh, are, are thriving, are doing are doing very well. And some of the bigger towns, I know some independents who are struggling because they were almost targeted by change. This is, you know, 15, 20 years ago. But now all bookstores are kind of in the same boat, just trying to hang on and, you know, and, and, and deal with the Internet. It's because, uh, as we all know, so much commerce is there now. But, um, right. The Internet is really yeah. a game changer for, <laughs> for books selling and for retail in general. It's- but, I, you know, I've learned over the years, there's still, there, there's, we're always going to have books. We're always going to have printed books because we all love them and a lot of people love them and we're always going to have bookstores because a lot of people enjoy the experience of going to the bookstore my kids grew up in bookstores you know that's that's what they love to do and they don't buy books online they go to the stores and and buy them the way the way we did uh so i i think i'm i know nothing about selling books i know nothing i I know (laughs) some people might take a little issue with that (laughs) okay good point uh let's uh Let's say I know nothing about the retail side of books, uh, selling books. Uh, I, learned, I learned with A Time to Kill, it's a whole lot easier to write a book than it is to sell a book. Because I sold, uh, I sold them out of the trunk of my car trying to unload them. 
And uh, that was, uh, you know, that was not any fun. It's tough to, it's tough to sell books. Well, a big part of our mission from, from uh, early on uh, is, uh, has been our, our kids' books and getting kids to read. And, you know, here we are in the, in the kids' section is, is creating an environment uh, for kids from an early age to feel comfortable in bookstores, around books, and getting read to and ha- having it be a fun experience for them early on. And so hopefully that creates lifelong readers. Yeah, in the uh, in Camino Island, there's a great bookstore that I, I kind of patterned after my favorite bookstore, and the bookseller that he touched on briefly in the seersucker suits. Um, by the way, he does not wear socks. Uh, he wears dirty buckskins every day. White shirt, little bow tie. He's a he's a really nice looking guy, and he's a playboy. And uh, he really likes women, and they like him. I, I did not uh, model him after Chris. I can promise you that. <laughs> Nice looking guy and all that, Chris. But you know, most booksellers are not known to be ladies, men, and playboys. Uh, so the, the great thing about fiction, you just create stuff like this. But the, a lot of the action takes place um, in a bookstore. It involves book selling. It involves uh, rare books, and uh, the book the bookseller, our hero, our sort of anti-hero, um, has a great bookstore. He makes a lot of money with rare books. And he also, uh, known only to a few people in the FBI, he is known to dabble in stolen rare books, which is a very small, little murky world that I had trouble penetrating as a researcher, but it's there. And so that's the premise for Camino Island, and uh, I hope you sell a million copies. <laughs> we look forward to it. Good start. Today. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. I'm going to ask David Gurnett to step up. David, um, uh, David doesn't want to do this. David's the reason I'm here, uh, because David uh, and his family have vacationed around here for many years. He's talked about this store uh, for, for years, and when I decided to tour, he said, all right, you're, you're going to North, <laughs> North Shire. You have no choice. I said, okay, it sounds great. Uh, so um, David's the reason I'm here. Delighted to be here. Most people uh, have not we were discussing this earlier in January of 1990, David was an editor at Doubleday and he bought the firm. And, um, we've never told the story about how that came about or how we got started together. He published the firm Pelican brief client chamber and rainmaker. And then in 1995, he and I are the same age, and by then we were very close friends. No, John's older. Uh, I'm so, <laughs> by a few months, David, just a few months old. Uh, but uh, in 1995, my longtime agent um, died suddenly in, uh, in New York, and, um, and I didn't really know a lot of other people in publishing because I don't hang out in publishing. You know, I, I write my books where I live and send them in. And I asked David to come to... Uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, and have lunch and visit, and he did. And uh, I said, have you ever thought about being an agent? And he said, not really. And I said, well, start thinking. Uh, <laughs> I said, I don't trust anybody else in publishing to do this kind of work, and I really would like for you to you know, kind of take charge and help me out. And, um, and he said, okay. And so we're, we've been together now for 27 years. Um, it's a pretty rocky 27 years at times, but uh, – We've had a lot of fun together. Dave, uh, tell the story of when you, when you first saw the manuscript of the firm. Uh, it, it's actually a really good story. Um, I had a friend, 
dumb luck, who worked in the movie business. <clears throat> and she worked for two very good and very successful producers in the film business, Scott Rudin and John Davis. And one day she called me and said, there's a novel that an agent in New York is not sending to publishers. He's only sending it to movie companies. And I read it, and I think you'd really like it. So you should call this agent, who was John's agent, Jay Guerin, and ask him if he'll send it to you. And I called Jay, and I said, you know, I understand you're only showing this manuscript to movie people. And he said, yes, but I've decided to send it to editors who call me and ask for it. <laughs> and I said, well, that's what I'm doing. I'm calling you and asking for it. Um, and, and, you know, only, I would say, four or five or six editors heard about it through the grapevine because there is a connection between the publishing business and the movie business. Um, so some editors heard about it and asked Jay and got a hold of it. And, uh, and then I, I, I read it, and I thought it was terrific. And then... I did one of the very few smart things I think I ever did in my career as an editor, which was I went and I got a copy of A Time to Kill. And I read that, and I thought, wow, these books are quite different. They're different in tone. They have a different kind of writing. But they're both great books. And I thought, if this guy could write these two books as his first two books, He's got a great career ahead of him if, in fact, he will take my advice and help. <laughs> and so I, I, I decided to, to try to buy the firm, in other words, to acquire the publishing rights uh, and publish it. And I called John's agent at the time, and I told him I wanted to preempt the rights, which means just give him a fairly large amount of money and take it off the market. Unfortunately, his agent did not really understand the term preempt. So he said, okay, I'll accept that. And then he shopped my offer around town. So all of a sudden, there were these other people who wanted to buy it. And I was like, well, wait a minute. No, I, I was supposed to take it off the market. Um, but as luck would have it, I persevered um, and, uh, and bought the book. But a really interesting thing about that in terms of publishing, and something that John and I have talked about over the years, I would imagine that, that Jody has talked about it or thought about it a lot, is a lot of the books that have become hugely popular novels of the last 20 years or 50 years or whatever it might be um, are not the books that publishers buy for $2 million in the hottest auction. It's more true that the books that become, you know, uh, just ch that got game changers in publishing are bought in a slightly less public way, a slightly less visible way, or maybe it's the author's third or fourth novel or whatever it might be, and the book is so good that... Uh, the phrase that I use is, it makes its own way. So when you show the manuscript to your marketing director, your publicity director, your sales director, whoever it might be in the company, everybody rallies around that book. And when everyone at a publishing company all fall in love with the book, they can make it work. But they have to fall in love with it. So the difference is between a good book and a great book. 
and it has nothing to do with how much they're sold for. And I mean, I paid decent money for the firm, but in hindsight, peanuts. I mean, that's what I thought at the time. I yeah. thought it was peanuts. <laughs> we weren't unhappy with the deal, but it could have been more. Yeah. But it's, it's also true that at the time that I was trying to buy the publishing rights, my friend, her name was Ruth Pomerantz, uh, from the movie side, called me and said, there is no deal yet, but I am telling you this movie is going to get made because everyone who reads the manuscript thinks it's like the best movie. And then what happened was I, I bought the publishing rights. I met John and Renee. They came to New York. We published the book. The book was very successful. But there was no movie. There was no movie. And, uh, and finally, um, a, a story that's sort of legend, I guess, um, was that Mike Ovitz, when he was running CAA, um, wanted the movie to get made. There was a lot of money involved. Um, and uh, they had had several screenplays. They finally had a screenplay they liked. And uh, he called the director and said, you should make this movie because Tom Cruise is going to be in it. And then he called Tom Cruise and said, you should be in this movie because the director's <laughs> going to make it. And this is true. And they both said, okay. And that's how the movie got made. Changing horses real quick, David. Um, and I don't want to talk about a lot about uh, the business nowadays, but when thir almost 30 years ago when I was trying to get published, as before the internet, obviously, uh, and I played this submission rejection game. Submission rejection. I kept, in any given time, I had five to ten copies of A Time to Kill, not the title, that wasn't the title, floating around New York to various agents and publishers. And the mail, the mail was kind of fun because I was getting all these rejections from New York. And, you know, it's kind of, that wasn't fun, but it was also something was going on in my life, you know. And, but it was physically the first three chapters of the novel, a cover letter and a synopsis. And that, my secretary would send that out and they would come right back. with So we, the submission rejection game was very much a part of publishing, and there were stories about it. Writers would give you advice and things like that. How is it done today? Uh, it's actually very similar. It hasn't changed dramatically, except that uh, all agencies, uh, I have a literary agency in New York. It's called the Gernert Company. Clever name, right? <laughs> um, and... If you go online, you can find our website. You can find the website for any of the agencies. And the fact that all of the literary agencies have websites has made it a lot easier for writers to find agents. So nowadays, we have these rules uh, of how you have to send manuscripts to our company, and they're on the website. And, you know, the, the manuscripts come in, and, and they're directed towards whichever agent. There's five senior agents in the company. They are directed towards whichever agent they're for, um, and then we read them and respond. Back in the, in the days before the Internet, um, you had to find an agent either through uh, a friend of a friend of a friend, or you could go to um, these very obscure, they had these, these publications that looked like telephone books, at, at every local library that listed publishers and listed agents, but nobody ever heard of those things. They were these obscure books, but it was much harder. Now with the internet, everybody can find the agencies. Does that mean you get, you get a lot more submissions because it's so easy? You know, we, we get more, but I think, first of all, there are many, many agents. So I think that the, the 
writers out there who are writing books have a lot of agents to choose from, you know, and, and, and therefore the manuscripts are sort of sprinkled around evenly. Um, and we get, uh, I would say, um, each agent in my company probably gets a dozen submissions a week, something like that. I mean, it's not a hundred, um, but it's, it's enough to, uh, <laughs> to keep us reading um, all the time. So for aspiring writers, there is hope. Absolutely. And the, uh, the, the thing that I find is most surprising to people who, who love and read fiction, the thing that is most surprising to them about what happens when an agent tries to sell a book to a publisher, which is obviously what I do, uh, and I'm only talking about fiction, writers are surprised by this. Readers are surprised by this. If, if I decide that I love a novel that's come into me through our website or whatever it might be, if I submit it to 10 great editors in New York publishing houses, and they're friends of mine, and they have great taste, and I, I think this manuscript I'm sending them is fantastic, most of the time, if you send it to 10 people, five will say no very quickly. Two will say, you know, I like this. And three will say, I'm kind of on the fence. It is never true that everyone likes a novel that you submit, which I think is not only fascinating, but a really good thing. Uh, because the truth is, no novel is for everybody. You know, I mean, so as an agent, your job is to try to match it with the person who it's, it's most uh, in tune with. Okay. All right. Enough of you. Um, <laughs> but I will say thank you for this bookstore. You've talked about it for many, many years. You've told me how great it is, and I'm delighted to be here because of you. I, I, have, to, I have to say, uh, when, when my kids were young, we brought them skiing up here every winter, and uh, my wife had – we would come and we would visit here sometime during the week, and then my wife had a rule that when we left to drive back to New York – we would stop here on the way home and they could each buy one book. And that was their favorite part of the ski trip. Thank you, David. Support for Book Tour with John Grisham comes from Audible. During the night, a uniformed officer walked around the building once or twice, shined his flashlight at the doors and kept walking. A marked patrol car made its rounds too, but it was primarily concerned with drunk students. Generally, the campus was like any other dead between the hours of 1 and 8 a.m. On this night, however, Princeton was in the midst of a frantic emergency as America's finest were being shot. Trey reported to his gang that the scene was total chaos, with cops scrambling about, SWAT boys throwing on their gear, sirens screaming, radios squawking, and a million red and blue emergency lights flashing. Smoke hung by the trees like a fog. A helicopter could be heard hovering somewhere close. Total chaos. If that story from John Grisham's Camino Island made you feel something, hear what an entire Audible book can do. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by visiting www.audible.com slash Grisham. That's audible.com slash Grisham. Hello, Jody. Hi, John. 
<laughs> we uh, we met uh, the first time, and I guess the only time. We don't know if it was three years ago or seven years ago because we're aging, and we can't. You know, <laughs> it's funny when you think back now. Was it five years ago, or was it you know what you know you know what it's like? Uh, but we did this wonderful event at Yale. What was the name of the hall? It was a beautiful Woolsey uh, Woolsey Hall. Yeah, and it was uh, David Baldacci. You and me, and we uh, were raising money for the Mark Twain House in Hartford, Connecticut. We had a packed house that night, and I just remember all we did was laugh. Yeah, it was really funny. It got really funny. We met before that. I'm sorry. We did. We met at... (laughs) I'll tell you why I remember this. We were at the National Book Festival. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you came up to me, and you said, your books are all over my house. Like that. I remember that now. <laughs> it was really sweet. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we have hung out before. We have, yeah. And you live in Hanover? I do, yeah. How I far away it. is that? Much farther than I usually think it is when I drive here. Um, I don't know. My husband was the one doing the driving, and to be honest, I was listening to testimony today on CNN as we were coming here. So uh, it's not it's the a- Scott Turow novel that just came out. No, no. <laughs> uh, it was a couple hours. Yeah. Okay, I don't want to ask how it went today in Washington. I've been in the back room in the in the bookstore signing books today, and I'm very happy to have missed yeah. all of it. Okay. <laughs> Have you toured here before? You've been to the store? Yeah, yeah. I've okay. been here multiple times. It's, this is it, the best It's on your, on your list. Last yeah. night we were in, in uh, Madison, Connecticut, R.J. Yep. Julius. That's one of your stores? I, we you, all go to the same place. Your neck of the woods, yes. huh? <laughs> I, that is not in my neck of the woods. I don't know why, but every time I go to R.J. Julia, I wonder how a state as tiny as Connecticut could take so long to cross. <laughs> it's like a four-hour drive, no matter where you are in Connecticut, to get to R.J. Julia. <laughs> But it's yeah. But, but we do we tend to go to the same, you know, great independence because they run terrific reading series. Okay. Talking about tours, are you touring or getting ready to tour or are you having you have just toured? <laughs> I toured um, I was on tour from October to January. I know. Right? How many stops? And then I stopped because I mean they like me to write every now and then. So <laughs> now I'm in the process of actively writing my next book. How many stops was your tour? Um, it's about 20, it was about 20 places in the U.S., and then it was another, like, 15 stops in, in Australia and then another 15 in the U.K. I've never done that. I've never, <laughs> yeah. I hope they don't bring that up. Uh, <laughs> I thought I was doing great to go to 13 stores in the month of June. Don't tell my wife about Australia, okay? <laughs> Good grief. So what are you working on now? Uh, I'm writing a novel about uh, women's reproductive rights. <laughs> Are you for it or against them? I'm very uh, for them. Being being a woman myself. What's yeah, so, okay? I'm not yeah. gonna. I don't ask writers. You know what? <laughs> what you're writing? I, you know, just yeah. something in general. Because I don't like to talk about what I'm writing. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't like people who are always talking about. Yeah, I'm writing this book. Or I'm thinking about writing a novel. I get tired of that. I got to tell you, I've been thinking a lot about you while I've been writing this book. I told you backstage that, right. um, first of all, it's set in Mississippi, where John's from. And I recently went to Mississippi because I thought it would be a good idea to do that if I was writing about it. And uh, Oh, you do research? Oh, yeah, I do. I do a lot of it. Yeah. But um, I actually was traveling with a doctor down there who performs abortions, which were, was very, very interesting. And Mississippi is the location of the book because it's one of the states in the United States that has only one 
sustained um, clinic that does terminations of pregnancies. Every other clinic is closed in Mississippi. So um, I was down there doing some research. But I've been thinking a lot about you because I remember when we were at Yale, you said that when you write a book, you do a very extensive outline. Like your outlines could be 100 pages long. And I sat there thinking, oh my God, why does he do that? Because I've never written an outline like that. This book is so complicated technically that I have the longest outline I've ever written in my so, life. So I've been thinking. So yeah, I am right. You are yeah. absolutely. Yep. Yep. But most writers, virtually all writers, uh, will deny using an outline. They just they they. they yeah, they, I mean, I do. I usually when I write though, it's like um, it's a couple of pages. It's more like a treatment for Hollywood yeah, than it yeah. is an outline. And then what I do is every time I'm at a chapter, I sort of write scenes that I know I'm going to see because to me it feels yeah. very visual and I just work my way through that list of scenes and then I know I'm done with the chapter. So it's a different kind of outline. How long does it take you to write a book? Mm, it depends on the book. Small Great Things took me about two years. It was the longest it ever took me to write a book. Uh, all my other books seem to take about nine months. You can do without what you will. Are you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you have a deadline? You have a contract with the deadline? I mean, yeah, technically. Technically? <laughs> Screw the deadlines. We're, <laughs> yeah. well, we're I mean, writers. We don't, deadlines mean nothing to us. My feeling is a book is going to take as long as it's going to take. And I would never shoehorn a book into a deadline. I would just say, you've got to give me a few more months, and, you know, that's how long the book is taking. But luckily, I haven't broken any deadlines yet. Okay. So you're, yet. you're, 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 you're almost always on time. Mm. Most writers are not. Almost yeah, I, I'm, I'm a, I don't know, I'm a workaholic a little bit, but I also, you know, I, I had gotten used to a real system of writing and touring and writing and touring, and it felt, it all fit very neatly into my life. So why are you, um, why are you writing books about race and abortion, and uh, what else can we, how much trouble do you want to start? I mean, what? Well, that's it. I got so much hate mail for the last book, I'm trying to top that with the next one. So, Yeah. Let's talk, all right, let's talk about the small, great things. Yeah. It came out in October. Um, for those of you who have not read it, give us a thumbnail. It's all about race, okay? But give us right. a thumbnail sketch of the plot. So, Based um, on a true story. Yes, it is. And so uh, I'll give you the true story first, and then I'll tell you okay. kind of how I extrapolated from it. Uh, in 2012, there was um, a nurse named Tanya Battle in Flint, Michigan. She was an African-American nurse with 20 years of experience on a labor and delivery ward, and she helped deliver a baby. And in the aftermath of that, the father called in her supervisor and said, I don't want her or anyone who looks like her to touch my kid. And he pushed up his sleeve to reveal a swastika tattoo. In their infinite wisdom, the hospital put a post-it note on the baby's file saying, no African-American personnel to touch this infant. The nurse wound up suing with some other professionals of color, and I hope she got a giant payout. But it made me wonder, all right, so what if? What if she'd been the only one alone with that baby when something went wrong? What if, as a result of her action, she wound up on trial, defended by a white public defender who, like me, like a lot of my friends, would never say, I'm a racist? What if I could tell the story from three points of view, the African-American nurse, the white public defender, and the white supremacist dad, as they all began to wrestle with their ideas about power and privilege and race? And so that became the seat of the novel. That's, uh, is that all? I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty loaded. So it has, it has, it has the three points of view. Yeah, it does. And it How did you get well. inside the head of the, uh, the Nazi? So um, I take my research very, very seriously. And so, uh, you know, for me, there was 
there were multiple lines of research. There was the legal research that I had to do because unlike you, I am not a lawyer. I just play one. And um, then I met with a lot of, I went, first of all, I went to a racial justice workshop because I had a little bit of learning to do about myself. You know, I wasn't going to ask all my readers to unpack their biases if I hadn't done it. And so um, I went to this social justice workshop thinking, I'm a nice person. How bad could this be? And I wound up leaving in tears every night um, really just taken back by the stories that I heard there. So, for example, there was uh, this Asian-American woman who stood up and was very tearfully talking about her love-hate relationship with eyeliner because it was the standard of beauty in the U.S., but it was hard for her to put on her eyes. There was this African-American woman who stood up and said that every time she walks out the door, she has to put on a mask, a metaphorical mask, so that um, when she goes outside, she can be the kind of black woman other people can handle. And just once, she wanted to walk out the door as herself. And then I met with a group, a whole bunch of different women of color in different stages of life who really shared their lives and their stories again with me so that I could at least try to approximate the voice of this African-American character that I was writing. For the white supremacists, I did the same thing. And I wound up meeting with two former white supremacists, not active ones because I am not an idiot, but um, (laughs) the first guy was a guy uh, who grew up in Orange County, California and who grew up in a very privileged home, uh, started running with a white supremacist gang. And one night, he and his buddies went out, and they beat up a gay man, and they left him bleeding to die in the street. Years later, he got out of the white supremacist movement. And he did this Was he convicted for that? um, No, he was not. Uh, He got out of the movement. It had to do with children that he was raising. It was like a decade later. And one of the first things he did was to write to the rabbi who was the head of the Simon Wiesenthal Center in L.A. Because at some point in his illustrious career, he had written something very disparaging about this guy. So the rabbi wrote him back and said, why don't you come work for me? And he did. He went to go every day and he would talk about leaving a life of hate. Well, one day he's sitting in the cafeteria and he looks up and he sees the gay man that he had beaten up and expected to die walking through the cafeteria leading a tour group. So their eyes met and they had this moment of recognition. There were months of apologies and forgiveness and acceptance. And now they consider themselves friends. They spend holidays at each other's houses. Um, They give talks every day about their story. And, uh, you know, they obviously have a very different life than, than years back. The other guy that I spoke with um, is a guy who ran a white supremacist gang in Philadelphia, a very violent gang. And like many white supremacists, he was convicted of something and wound up in jail for a while. When he was in jail, he learned pretty quickly that he had more in common with the African-American kids than he did with the white kids. They would talk about the girls that they missed on the outside and the food they missed on the outside. Then he finally got out of jail, and his first job was working for a Jewish man. And um, the night before his contract was up, he was called into this boss's office. And he was sitting there thinking, the guy's going to stiff me on my payment. I know it. I know all Jews are, you know, that's how Jews are. They try to cheat you out of your money. So he goes into the boss's office and the boss says, Frankie, you've been such an exemplary employee. I'd actually like to pay you twice what I contracted you for. (laughs) And he began to wonder how many exceptions to the rule do there have to be before maybe you realize the rules are wrong. And both of these men now, actively work for anti-racism groups. Uh, This guy, Frankie, works with the FBI to ferret out white supremacists. Um, And, you know, this other guy, Tim, from California, works every day with the Simon Wiesenthal Center spreading a message of tolerance. So they're, you know, they really gave me a sense that 
people can change, like dramatically. People can really change. And the lawyer. Yeah, the lawyer. Had, what kind of research there? Um, so, you know, the truth Just is. Read Grisham as, novels, or I read <laughs> always. I mean, yeah. Um, no, I. I mean, I have a core of lawyers um, who now I can I can call, and I usually take them out, take them somewhere fun, and uh, make them talk into a tape right. recorder for like forty or fifty hours. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's some, <laughs> some dreadful research. Yeah, I know. But they keep coming back, so I must be doing something right. How was the book uh, published in October of last year? How was it received? Very, the- very well. I actually was anticipating a lot more pushback than I received. Um, I was, you know, there's a lot right now about the right to write and diverse books and who whose right is it to tell a certain story. And I thought a lot about that when I was writing this book. I've tried to write about race before, and I actually failed. I couldn't really figure out how to do it until now. And it was because I I had to wrap my head around the fact that my audience was people who look like me. And that's really the role of the ally in racism, too. It's to talk to the people who look like you. I wanted to talk to the people who can very easily point to a white supremacist and say, that's a racist, but can't point to themselves and say the same thing. And so, you know, once I could sort of understand that, it was very easy for me to write this book. And to be honest, I have not had criticism from people of color. I've had a lot of people who've written to me and said, I had to check the author photo because I thought you were black. And um, let me tell you about the microaggressions that I've faced. And I've collected all of their stories, too, because they're horrifying and, um, you know, important to hear. And uh, the only pushback that I've gotten has been from white men. It's a dangerous group. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but I think they're, you know, I you, think that's you, very threatening. You, you mentioned hate mail. You, yeah. Lots of white supremacists on Twitter. Lots of them. Yeah. Yeah. Enough to scare you? No, because, you know, one of the things that I learned from these guys who I worked with is that nowadays white supremacy is very different. These guys are not dressing in their Doc Martens and their suspenders and going out wilding at night to beat people up because they all kept getting thrown in in jail, basically. So now they work in individual cells or they work on the Internet. And their mission is sort of to um, spread fear through online posts or they might go into a community and make it look like there are far more of them than there actually are. They'll leave like the final call from the Nation of Islam under the windshield wipers of all the cars in a temple parking lot. You know, it might be two guys, but it makes the whole town edgy. And that's sort of the way that they thrive. You know, the idea is to incite terror with a few choice words and, um, you know, a few choice gestures. And you're seeing, we're seeing more of that behavior in the past six months? Yep. Yeah. I mean, I will say I was on tour for this book. I was overseas when the election happened. And I... I I kept getting, I actually stopped being an author and all of a sudden I became an ambassador from the United States and people kept asking me, you know, what's going on? How, how did this happen? What's, you know, and it was, I was like, I don't know. I don't know what to say, you know, but it was very shocking. And, um, what I've seen in, in the wake, I think one of the reasons sadly that this book has done so well is because there are a lot of people who are feeling these tensions. Um, it's not that they weren't here before. It's that there's suddenly a permission to bring that seedy underbelly of racism to the surface. Right. And there's going to be a movie? 
Yeah, so I hear. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I wish I could tell you more. Believe it when you see it. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Um, What I know is that uh, Amblin is producing it, which is Spielberg's company, and it's supposed to be starring Viola Davis and Julia Roberts. Yeah. I know. I can't wait either. (laughs) It's going to be great. I can't wait to see it. In case you missed that, in one sentence she mentioned Spielberg, (laughs) Julia Roberts, and Viola Davis. That's, that's, That's pretty good. I know. So who's playing what? Uh, <laughs> who's the white supremacist? I don't know. They haven't told me. They tell me nothing. So, you know, I have find out when I read Have you signed a contract? It. I have signed a contract, yes. Okay. But mostly I find things out by reading it online. So, yeah. Well, I've got about three or four movie contracts that I've signed, and nothing. It's in production. That yeah. means it's dead, okay? Uh, yeah, no, I, know. I know. Nothing's going to be filmed uh this year, probably not next year. I don't know when it's going to be filmed. But we we have a hard time uh, making movies. It's almost impossible. David yeah. David does almost all the work, and yeah, he gets calls every day about every book I've written. You know, I've had nine adapted to film. The last movie though was 15 years ago. Wow! And they're all for sale. Yeah, uh, right. I mean, I, I'm not holding any of them anymore. <laughs> Uh, I, 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 we, we would all, love, every writer would love to see their work tra- adapted into a great movie because we all love great movies. Yeah. And what I like the, is when people write you and go, why don't you make that book a movie? Yeah. Like, I haven't thought of that. Right? Oh, I love so. it. <laughs> oh, I love it when they say, look, man, I hadn't read your books, but I love your movies. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I say thanks. Yeah. Know, I just keep going because you can't talk to him. You can't. You can't. Uh, you can't. You just can't talk to him. But uh, um, you know, the, we we have a hard time now, and I'm, I'm realizing there's nothing I can do. Camino Island came out two days ago, and there's nothing I can do personally to get that movie made. Mm. If I gave the film rights away for yeah. free, which I'm not going to do, uh, <laughs> I'll sell them pretty cheap. All right, but not. To, <laughs> If I wrote the screenplay, yeah. and I'm not a screenwriter, but I've written several, mm-hmm. if, if I gave the screenplay uh, to them, take the movie, take the screenplay, it's got my name on it, all of it, and just go make the movie, that would not move the needle one bit. Yeah. It's not going to help. No, I, oh, I don't know if you found this, but I have found that in Hollywood, people don't seem to care very much about readers. Like, they don't realize that, that they are a force to be reckoned with, which I think is really dumb, Right. Dumb. The stupidity is uh, shocking. Okay. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, they've said things to us like, uh, "Well, I could, I could write a book about Hollywood. I'm not going to." But oh, you should. Things like, uh, we, we, you know, like like Camino Island would come out, and this is hypothetical. They would say, "Do you think it'll be successful?" <laughs> no. Do you, th- do you think no. it's going to sell? Yeah, you know? it's not like any of your books. Why don't you read the book, yeah. okay? <laughs> yeah. uh, but, right. They don't, though. But again, they don't but read. But you have to give them a three-page treatment. They, like ha- you actually they, they hate writers. And, yeah. and when it's not all bad, I mean, they, to their, in their defense, uh, each night they have a pile of screenplays to read. I mean, they, yeah. they, producers and studio people don't like, I can't say they hate writers, but they they get a lot of writers. They get a lot of stuff yeah. to read, and they're not known for reading a lot of stuff. Right, so. that's it. They're, they're not. They're, they're a handful, uh, you know, that, that make a lot of movies. Now all the action's in television. But Hollywood right. is, is a herd mentality. You yeah. know, right now television's hot, so they're all running television. Well, something right. else will, you know, another Titanic comes along, they're all making Titanic movies. You know, but right. it's all... It's YA just, novels are really hot now yeah, for translation yeah. films. So right. Okay, just, so I have a question for you, though. You can ask questions, yes. Thank you. Um, so you also had a show that was brought to Broadway, Time to Kill, right? 
I did, and it opened in, in October and closed in November. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And it was really odd because... Did you like it? Did you like the experience? I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. It was really odd because I saw the play three times on Broadway, and all three times the place wasn't packed, but there were a lot of people there. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were a lot of tickets sold. Right. And, and I think for the 35 performances... Uh, they had really nice crowds. Mm-hmm. But again, this is another business I know nothing about, and I don't want to learn it. Um, with, with, with Broadway, they project ticket sales several months in the future. Right. And if the, ticket, if the future sales aren't out there, the projections, they'll shut a play down immediately because they're so expensive right. to keep one going. Right. And they did not see the future ticket sales enough yeah. to keep it on. It's like half a million bucks a week right. to keep the thing going. Uh, the money's really crazy, and I, ha- I had nothing to do with that. Uh, but it was very sad to see it go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, opening a play on Broadway based on my first novel, a play I enjoyed watching, mm-hmm. uh, was a real thrill. Mm-hmm. And I was very sad to see it close. Um, yeah. Have you done that yet? I'm in the process. My daughter and I wrote a YA series, um, Between the Lines and Off the Page, and that's being adapted for Broadway uh, as a musical. So we've been working on it for a few years now with uh, someone who is the book writer who's, you know, helping with the script. Um, we have a terrific pair of uh, composer and lyricist, uh, these two ladies who are working for Disney now. And um, it's been so much fun. It's a totally different way to write. It's very collaborative, which I really enjoy. And uh, we have our out-of-town tryout in, at Kansas City Rep in September, and hopefully we will get to Broadway. Good tip. Yeah, that's uh, fun. But see, that's the difference. You need music. <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> Talk about the process of writing uh, a YA book with your daughter. It's it was be, great. Got to be fun. Yeah. So my daughter, who just graduated last week from Vassar, um, when she was 13 years old, I was on a book tour. I was in Los Angeles, and she called me up. Um, I was stuck in on traffic. Uh, on the highway. And she said, I think I have a really good idea for a book. And I said, all right, hit me. And she said, what if every time you closed a book, the characters inside it had lives and personalities different from the roles they played. But when the book was open, they had to go right back to act one, scene one. And what if there was like a kind of a, a quiet girl, a loner who wasn't really happy with her life and escaped into books. And she became really obsessed with this fairy tale because the prince who was illustrated in it was really hot. And one day he talked back to her and I was like, oh my gosh, it's a literary crush. Everyone has them. This is a great idea for a book. And so we sat down together and we wrote, um, it was like boot camp. It was mommy boot camp over the summer. And, you know, I made her seriously write it. I wasn't going to write it for her. So the two of us collaborated. We spoke every single word of that book out loud. We would bounce back and forth. It was fascinating to see that the way that my brain works is very similar to the way her brain works. And we wrote the first book together, um, edited it the second summer of her high school career. Third summer, we went on tour to three continents. And then she went off to college, and uh, and she was like, I'm never writing a sequel. And I said, yeah, uh, okay, yeah, because I knew she was. And um, that January, she, she called me up and she said, you know, I've been thinking about the sequel. <laughs> and so uh, we wrote it. We actually wrote it over the summer. And then because she was a college kid and too busy, I had to do edits with her via speakerphone from 10 to midnight, because that was when she was available. Yeah. That's a lot of work. Yeah, but it was great. You know, it was really fun. It brought us closer together. Yep. She's an incredible writer. Her thesis at Vassar was writing a YA novel on her own. 
So I know she learned something from it. And um, and it was, you know, I, I'd love to see her publish one day. She's got a great imagination. It's off to a good start. Yeah. Uh, we got a few minutes to go. And at this point, we'll open it up to questions from the floor. If you have one, just stand up and yell at us, and we'll repeat the question. <laughs> the question is, um, if you want to become a writer, how do you make the, the decision about what to write uh, between short stories Long stories, fiction, poetry, nonfiction. Um, you want to handle that one, Jody? Uh. <laughs> yeah. So when I started studying writing, I went. I actually went to Princeton, which is in part a very. It's a big part of John's book because that's where the F. Scott Fitzgerald manuscripts are stolen from in the book. Um, I also feel the need to share with you that my senior year, I lived in the room that F. Scott Fitzgerald lived in in Princeton. Yeah. There was a chipmunk that spent most of its time in my room. Um, but anyway, when I was at college and I was in creative writing courses, I actually started writing poetry because that's all I wrote as a teenager. I wrote these really depressing, horrible poems about you know how awful my life was, which it was not. Um, and I didn't know anything about writing short fiction. But I studied with poets at, at college, and I think that actually changed the way I eventually wrote because I think a lot about the line level when I'm writing and the structure of a sentence and the poetry of a sentence. And I know a lot of writers who have never written poetry who don't think about that at all. But eventually I decided to move on to short fiction because I wanted to try it and it was a safe space and, and I did. And uh, again, when I was writing short stories, I was like, oh, okay, well, this is what I do. I write short stories. And then my advisor said, so I think for your thesis, you should write a novel. So, you know, sometimes it's really about, I think, testing out the waters in different ways and doing things you never expected to do. Um, you know, I never expected at one point in my life to write fiction. I thought I was only going to write poetry. I certainly never thought I'd be working on a Broadway musical, you know, but I love that. I love the fact that writing is a skill that can be applied in many different places. And I think in terms of figuring out what you do best, it's sort of where is your heart right now? What is it that you're writing? If I sat down to write a short story now, chances are it would be 80 pages. It's not that short because I'm used to writing novels. But, you know, you start where you feel comfortable. While Jody was uh, studying writing at Princeton, I was studying accounting at Mississippi State, okay, <laughs> and never thinking about writing. Uh, it, it was not a childhood dream. I didn't study it in college. I, I was always an avid reader. Never thought about writing until I was 30 years old. And I, I got the idea one day because of something I witnessed in a courtroom and I became obsessed with a story about, you know, a courtroom drama. And finally, after, you know, living with this story for a while, I said, I'm going to try to write it just on a whim. So it was not something I'd planned to do. But again, like Jody said, it depends on um, it depends on your story. If, if you have a small story, it's a short story. <laughs> if you have something bigger, you know, some huge novel of story, it's going to be a novel. It, 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 it depends on where your heart is, you know, what you want to write. Yes, ma'am. The question is, with the movies, do we get input into the screenplay and uh, in the movie? Um, not really. I mean, I don't I don't make movies. I don't know how to make movies. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to do that. OK, I'm too busy writing books and having fun doing it. Uh, I think once you get to our level, we're going to be able to see the screenplay. When we sell film rights, we, we sell, first of all, to people we know, uh, good folks, and there are a lot of good folks out there, very talented people, and, and, and they're, they're going to hire a good screenwriter, 
and we'll, you know, we'll probably approve that screenwriter and then read the screenplay. And I, oftentimes I'll read the screenplay and make some notes. Sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. Uh, and, and, but I don't want to get sucked into making that movie because I don't know what I'm doing. And a lot of times writers get too involved and it's not a good experience and, and whatever. I stay away from it. I go to the set two or three times and, you know, and hang out with them and have lunch so, that, so the kids can have fun and go back home and hope it's a good movie. And after, with, with nine films adapted, I have been very lucky with Hollywood. And again, I would like for all of them to be adapted. What about you? I have been less lucky with Hollywood. So um, I actually worked very closely with uh, the director, who was also the screenwriter, who wanted my help. Um, he would call me up weekly. He would bounce ideas off me. He would read me parts of his screenplay. And the only thing I asked when he was hired, and I talked to him about it, I said, the only thing you really have to do is keep the ending. Because that's what makes people read the book. They actually read it, throw it at a friend, and say, just read this so we can talk about it. And um, he swore to me, he said, I'm not going to change the ending. If anyone does, I'm going to tell you why, and I'm going to tell you myself. And so he showed me a script that looked very much like the book. And then one day I got an email from a fan who worked at a casting agency. And she said, did you know they changed the ending of My Sister's Keeper? So I called him at his home. And he wouldn't take my call. And I went to the set, and he threw me off the set. And I went to the head of New Line Cinema at the time, and I said, you are making a giant mistake. Uh, my readers are rabid. They're going to be really angry that you did this. And he said, no, no, we really we know what we're doing. We totally trust him. He made the notebook. This, you know, It was Nick Cassavetes, which is not the right thing to say to me. And so um, <laughs> they made this movie. And, um, you know, it was a good movie. But it had great performances, but it was not my book. And a lot of my readers and a lot of the people who had loved the book boycotted it. And the book, you know, the movie didn't do well, for which I was actually kind of grateful. <laughs> you got thrown off a set? Yeah. I, I had am to, so I got envious. Thrown, no, uh. I got thrown off the set and, um, and I got, I wound up having, I was, I was stunned because I had come out to LA for this and I marched into, you know, New Line Cinema after that. And then my agent called up, you know, them and said, she has to get back onto the set. This is ridiculous. It was literally like mommy and daddy are fighting. That's what it was like on the set. And uh, I had to, I had to publicly apologize to this director on the set so that he would let me back on and, and spend the rest of my visit there. Wow. Yeah. That's great. He's not a favorite of mine. <laughs> yes, sir. The question is, do we, I guess, do we have the right or do we, would we say, would we disagree with a casting choice? Most of the time when I sign a contract, uh, I retain the right to not cast the three or four leading roles, but to veto someone I think is miscast. And uh, that's only been true in like the last maybe four or five movies. It's funny, the more books you sell, the more clout you have, the more they'll listen to you. Um, and there was one, The Time to Kill was a movie where uh, I disagreed strongly with a, a casting decision. And uh, I said, I vetoed the guy. And, and they really got bent out of shape. And we had to get the lawyers involved. And it was a lot of fun because I had the lawyers, you know, and I had the contract. <laughs> Uh, but but again, what, what, if you start, if you if you if you have more clout, 
you, you, you find yourself getting, again, sucked into the movie-making process. If you're going to read the screenplay and make notes, if you're going to approve casting or approve the director or whatever, you're, you're getting involved in it, and that's not where you need to be. Uh, not, that's not where I need to be. You may feel much more comfortable going to the set and getting kicked off. You know, you may like that. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> when I did My Sister's Keeper, I, was, I wasn't even the bottom of the totem pole. I was underground. So I had absolutely no say, nothing. And um, I will tell you there were casting decisions I did not agree with in that movie, um, like the lead. Um, but I had, I had nothing I could say about it. I will say that, like John said, um, it was because I actually said to, to New Line Cinema, this movie's going to lose money, and it did. All of a sudden, I was a savant. And as a result of that, I have had more clout in future um, deals than I did the first time around. Yes, ma'am. The question is to Jody, uh, have you ever written nonfiction? I do, I do so much research for my books. I sometimes spend more time researching than I do physically writing the book. And yet, and, and I want to get it right. That's the reason I do the research. I don't ever want you to be reading one of my books and go, well, she phoned that one in. Um, you know, but honestly, I would be paralyzed by writing nonfiction. There is this little buffer zone in fiction that I can take a liberty if I need to for the story. So I don't know how journalists do it. Um, you know, if I were ever going to write nonfiction, it would probably be a book about all my research experiences, which is kind of like cheating. Uh, but I can't imagine doing it for a living. Another question? <laughs> Where do we find our original ideas? Uh, um, that's probably the question we get asked the most. Um, I do. I do, too. Go ahead. Um, I, can I give you the best answer I ever heard? It's not mine, but it was the best answer. They arrive every Tuesday wrapped in brown paper from UPS. <laughs> I just thought that was so funny. Stephen King said he gets his <laughs> off the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He Googles ideas and there they are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, it's just, it's the stuff that keeps me up at night. It's the stuff that I can't stop worrying about or thinking about. And if I, I keep waking up thinking about it, and it happens for several days in a row, it's probably a really good idea for a book. Yeah. Uh, I spend my time, because of my background, uh, watching from a distance lawyers, trials, law firms, cases, appeals, courts, judges, uh, trends in litigation. That's just my, that's my world. That's, uh, that's what I enjoy. Uh, that's what I, you know, I went to college to do, went to law school. That's what I like to do. And when you, and I say this uh, seriously, when you, uh, when you watch lawyers, the material is endless. There's just yeah. a lot of good material. Yeah. And then, and in, in the context of the law, you, you, I do have things that keep me awake. Mm -hmm. There are issues that, that really bother me, mm -hmm. uh, issues in, that involve social injustice and breakdowns in our system that should not happen, wrongful convictions, innocent people in prison, mass incarceration. There are a lot of issues that I, I still want to write about. Mm -hmm. uh, women's prisons, putting women in prison, taking them away from their families. And these are, there are a lot of issues there and a lot of really 
dramatic, um, heartbreaking stories that would make great novels. Yeah. And that's why that's what I think about all the time. I've got files filled with articles uh, that I that I keep research uh, that I go back to, and, and and the best ideas are the ones that kind of fester for a while. And and then every year I'm going to start a new a new legal thriller in right. January, and that's that's my schedule. Mm-hmm. And I take the best idea I have and and run with it in January. Mm. Do you miss practicing? Not for a minute. No. <laughs> Jody, I got a phone call from when, when, when David Gurnett called and said, hey, I just bought the firm, as he said, for peanuts. It wasn't peanuts, but it was a nice contract. I walked out of the law office and didn't even turn off the lights. I just walked. <laughs> I walked away. And part of that was, uh, you know, I only did it for 10 years. But about halfway through that brief career, I started writing. Uh, time to kill. I didn't know if I was going to finish the book. Right. But once I started writing and I really liked doing that, I got the bug to think about writing full time, which mm-hmm. is a dream that we all have. Mm-hmm. And for us, we're lucky it came true, you know. But to, the idea of just writing books, uh, it, it, it was a, such a romantic notion. Everything else was kind of dull. You know, the law office really got even duller then. And politi- I lost interest in politics and all that kind of stuff because I had this other dream that, you know, luckily, luckily came true. A uh, couple more questions. You got them? Yes, ma'am. How do we keep our sense of self and keep our wits about us as we are developing these characters and coming up with very complicated plots? Um, you want to go first? Yeah. So I have, I have long said that the difference between... Um, writing and schizophrenia is a paycheck. (laughs) Because those characters, they're in there, and I hear them talking all the time, you know? Right? So, you know, for me, um, they're very vivid. They're very much alive. And I do spend much more time with them than you do. You spend, you know, a week or two. I spend nine months with them. Um, But I also write about people who are having horrible, horrible things happen to them. I mean, I don't write nice, sunny, happy Books. I don't even set my books in beautiful places like Florida, you know. So I, I mean, the people in my books are going through a really tough time. I am really lucky. I live in a beautiful part of the country. I have the world's best, most compassionate, smartest, most handsome husband, and I'm not just saying it because he's sitting over there. He really is. And I have three terrific kids who are all the kind of people I'd want to be friends with, even if I hadn't given birth to them. So I mean, I have this really charmed life. It is so easy for me to leave my office in the attic every day and come downstairs because there is no question what the difference is between the lives of my characters and me. If I were living some kind of horrible tragedy, I think I would have a much harder time writing the things I write. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I, don't get, I don't get too emotionally attached to... The, the, the to the characters, the, the plots are intricate, and you know they, I keep them at a distance. Uh, I try to get you emotionally attached. I, I, I want you to get caught up with the characters. I, I keep my distance. Um, the, the the books, you know, I, I do it for three or four hours a day. I put it down, and I, I try to forget about it. Except for the past, the, the last month before a deadline, and, and you don't worry about deadlines, but I do. And <laughs> for example, my dead my deadline for the legal thriller. That, that will be out in October is all, you know, always going to be around July the 1st. I start January the 1st. I finish around July the 1st. Well, this year I knew back in January that Camino Island would be published on June the 6th, and I would spend the month of June doing what I'm doing now. 
touring, so I couldn't finish the book. So I got really busy back in uh, February, March, and April, and, and, and May um, to finish the legal thriller, okay? The month of May, I was pretty much out of it. I mean, I was just, you know, I was so uh, obsessed with the story, working really hard on it, writing hard, and you start forgetting where you put your car keys. You know, you forget little things. You start, I made more checklists. You leave the house? Yeah, I leave. <laughs> I have to. My wife makes me leave the house. <laughs> but you, you can become so obsessed with the story as you're getting close to the deadline that you just you zone out mm-hmm. and, you, and you start doing stupid things. Fortunately, my wife and my kids know Mm-hmm. That, that it's that month, you know, I'm trying yeah. to finish. Yeah. And you, you hear him whisper behind your back, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, oh, he's, yeah. he's off in la-la land, right. you know, trying to, that, yeah. that's, that's very much a part of it. But it's, again, I'm not an emotional person. I, I try to keep the emotion, my emotion away from it. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Jody, but when I finish a book, once you go through all the drafts, yeah. you know, the, all the copy edits, uh, there are like five or six or seven different drafts of the book, and that all happens in a short, concentrated period of time when you're working pretty hard. I am really sick of the book. Yeah, I have I never, I have I never gone back and, and mm-hmm. read one of my yeah. books. I, I don't want to go back. You couldn't yeah. pay me to read one of my books. I had, <laughs> they did pay me. I had to, I, like, it paid me five thousand bucks to read Bleachers for the audio oh, thing, yeah. and that was torture. It was it's uh, hard. Oh. It's really hard. Yeah. Oh, it's so hard because yeah. I was in a sound, you know, a sound yeah. booth or whatever. With, with headphones on yep. for three days, and if you make one stray sound, they make you read the page over. Yep. I mean, there's, you know, they, they got a gun to your head. Yeah. And I'm thinking, why am I doing this? I'm not a professional actor. <laughs> so never again would I, I read. Have you, have you read an audio book? I did a collection of short stories that I wrote that they kind of packaged together as an audio book. And it was the same thing. It was like a, you know, a, a full day's work to read three short stories. And I get asked a lot, well, why don't you read your own books, yeah. you know, on, on tape? And honestly, it's because there are people who are way better than I am who have the time to do it. The, well, and, and they're professional actors and actresses yeah. who can, who can uh, capture voices yeah. and remember the voices throughout the course of the book, you know. Yeah. And here yeah. I was just hacking away with no theatrical skill whatsoever. <laughs> And I got to I got to the end of uh, Bleachers, and there's this very emotional scene when the old football coach dies, and his players are coming back to talk about him. And I just said, I don't get emotional, okay? I started choking up, when, and I'm reading <laughs> I'm reading my own book, and I'm thinking I, we had to keep doing takes because I kept getting choked up, and I, I, the whole time I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing here? I'm not I'm not I'll never do this again. So I'll I'll never I'll never do it again. One more question, yes, ma'am. Question is, do have we ever started a book? That didn't work, and we had and we had to stop and and, and write something else. And why did that happen? Go ahead. Yeah, I um I had a book I was writing that actually was about a hit and run uh, on a campus that looked a lot like Dartmouth because the students are forever walking across the street like this in their phones, and I'm always convinced I'm going to hit one of them at night. And um, I started to write this book, and my mom and my agent read the chapters as they're coming out way before anyone else reads it. And they were both like, oh, I'm really into this. This is great. Keep going. I can't wait to read more. And I knew it was a good book. I knew it was good. But I also knew it wasn't great. And the whole time I was writing, I kept hearing this voice in my head saying, I was six years old the first time I disappeared. And she kept saying this to me over and over. And finally, I got so tired of hearing her that I sat down and I started writing in her voice. And I wrote 40 pages in like an hour and I read it and I went, oh, wait, I get it. That's the book I'm supposed to write. And so I put aside the other book. 
never went back to it because it was a good book, but it wasn't a great book and you don't deserve it if it's not great. And I wrote that instead and it became Vanishing Acts. About 20 years ago, I started a book that I thought was going to be brilliant. You have to think they're all going to be brilliant or you can't, st- you have, you can't start them. And you got to love them to finish them. And I wrote this book. Remember the, the, uh, the Bhopal gas plant uh, disaster in, in India probably 25 years ago? I think it was Union Carbide had a plant. It leaked, killed two or 3,000 people. Well, that was the backdrop, all fictionalized. There were so many stories about American trial lawyers, tort lawyers, trying to get to India uh, to sign up to cases. They were, they, they were getting fistfights on airplanes. I mean, it was, oh, there was a lot of stories that went on. I thought, you know, I'm going to capture that disaster and play it out in an American courtroom, the whole trial. And it was, it was brilliant. I swear it was brilliant. And my, <laughs> my, my wife read the first hundred pages and she said, I really hate these people. Okay. <laughs> she said, there's not a single person so far that I like, and I'm not going to read any more. Huh. And I said, Okay, I'll show you. So I sent, it to, I sent it to David, okay? And David read the 100 pages, and he said, John, I really don't like these people. <laughs> and I can't fight both of them, okay? You know, uh, so I said, okay. It was, the title was The King of Torts, which is a great title. I filed it away and used it in a different novel a few yeah. years later. But that's the, that's the only time. It's just too much work. What we do, not work, but, you know, there's a lot of hours that go into it, and it's, it does take some labor to, to waste pages like that. And I've just gotten so lazy, I'm not going to waste stuff like that. So I, I'm very careful with the outline and plotting and planning because I don't want to have to. I know I have writer friends who will write to it, have a great idea, and take off. Can't wait to write it. 40 pages a day. They're burning the pages up. They love the story, love the story. And finally, it starts running out of gas after about 200 pages, and they can't finish the book because they had a great opening, mm-hmm. but not the ending. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens when you don't outline, Joe. You should outline every time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> For what it's worth, I, I agree, because I've, I've never written a book where I don't know the ending. Even when I wasn't writing a... One of my time. rules within the New York yeah. Times the other day, my do's and don'ts for writing, uh, don't write the first scene until you know the last scene. Right. And I, and I really believe that. I agree. We're out of time. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Thank John. Thank you, David Gurnett, Chris Mora, <laughs> and the beautiful Northshire Bookstore. Thank you all. Thanks to my guests, Jody Picot, David Gurnett, and thanks to Chris Morrow, owner of Northshire Books, and his staff, volunteers, and loyal customers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work. And thanks, of course, to our sponsor, Audible.com. See you next week on the road with Book Tour. <laughs>